This is a podcast for first-generation Christian families. We don't have all the answers, and we didn't do everything right. But by God's grace, we are building a legacy. And so can you. You are listening to... We Met Geekle! Several times a year, I have what I think you would call lucid dreams. They're real vibrant dreams, ones that stick with you. They feel real. And they seem to be me just working out something big, my subconscious, my fear, whatever, something. And I remember having this reoccurring dream, had it two, three, maybe even four times, about a year and a half after Hudson was born. And in the dream, I'm on a rocky beach, and I'm looking out over the ocean. And way out there, deep in the ocean, you can see uh, thunderclouds, like dark clouds, lightning in the clouds. You can hear the rumble of thunder. And you can see the, the waves picking up. It's a really kind of frothy, angry sea. And I realized that this uh, scene was from a, a painting called The Wanderer. It's got this sort of British guy looking over a foggy sea. But again, in this dream, it's not a foggy sea as much as an angry sea with the storm rolling in. And I'd wake up and I would always think, a storm's coming. A big storm's coming and I need to get prepared for it. And it, it kind of just hung in the back of my mind as a warning. Do you remember me telling you about that dream? Yes, and the crazy thing was there was a storm headed our way. And not really just our way. It was headed at the entire American economy because it was it was 2008. It was the start of the Great American Recession, and it ended up causing us to totally reboot our life. Yes, and that's the start of what we refer to as our Midian years. But before we get to the Midian years and the storm that started them, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of our early parenting mistakes, victories, and maybe weirdness? What was the gap between Hudson, our firstborn, and Athanasius, the secondborn? They're 25 months apart. So just two years and a month. What do you remember about being getting pregnant with Athan? You were playing blackjack at that time. And so we were at a casino hotel, but I forget. You were at Rio, Rio. when we found out, yes. Yeah. And so we were trying to get pregnant and... I remember going in this ridiculously long bathroom. It was like, I don't know, 24 feet long. It was a gigantic suite I had because yeah. everyone thought I was a big whale high roller at the time. So I had a pregnancy test and I checked and I came out of the bathroom in this suite and you were on the phone with somebody and um, I brought you the pregnancy test and I was just so excited because... I loved being a mom, and I was excited about having another baby with you. And then I remember after that, Hudson and I went downstairs to their ridiculously huge swimming pool, and we went swimming. <laughs> it's a great swimming pool at Rio. I was really excited about being a dad for the second time. The angst and kind of difficulty that surrounded Hudson— Mm-hmm. Getting pregnant with him, kind of us even making that decision, and then the difficulties around his actual labor and birth. That wasn't there with Athen. I think we were very much wanting to be parents and having multiple children. And that birth, as I recall, 
went pretty well. Mm-hmm. It did. It was our second home birth. It was a second water birth. We had the same midwife. Everything went smoothly. There were no complications. It was really sweet afterwards just to get tucked in my bed and snuggle with my new baby and then have my toddler come in and meet his little brother. You and I have talked about how when you have lots of kids, you have them over many years. And so there's like this 20-year-old version of you that's a parent. And now, you know, Cyrene's only three. I'm 43. You're getting ready to turn 40 next year. We're very different people. So you have kind of your early parenting and maybe mid or late parenting. What do you remember that's kind of funny or notable about some of our early parenting goals and methods and things that we just we did that we don't do anymore? So funny things that I think about that I did when we were in our early parenting years with just like two kids, I got really caught up with cloth diapering and infant potty training and... Well, now let's stop here for a moment. Okay. So infant potty training is kind of amazing. And (laughs) I think a lot of people will have a hard time believing this. So basically Hudson, when he was very little, how little would you say? Well, we started with him when he was like three months old of doing infant potty training. So we didn't start when he was a newborn. So he was a couple months old. Mm-hmm. And you could teach them how to signal to you with their hand, like sign language, that they have to use the restroom. Right. And Hudson, when he was just a couple months old, because he was really little, I can remember you holding him over the toilet. He would give you this little signal, and you would hold him to the toilet, and he would pee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane. So the way I found out about this was I had joined – I didn't know anybody in my friend circle, anybody my age that had a baby. I was the first person – that I knew around my age that had a kid. So I joined a Yahoo group of other moms that were doing cloth diapering. And I, I think we had an acquaintance that she had cloth diapered with her kids, but I think all her kids at that point were out of diapers. Anyway, so I joined this group and I would go and, you know, it was like kind of a mix of, you know, there were people there that said that they were Christians, although I don't know Anyway, it was like a mix of, of like people, a lot of non-Christians. And, um, a lot of the crunchy stuff that we were into yes. had <clears> – <throat> so one, one example of this that we didn't talk about last episode was that when we did home birth, the woman that uh, taught one of our home birth – it was like a home birth meetup or something, right? Mm-hmm. And she was a lesbian and she had a lesbian lover and they had gotten pregnant somehow. And then there was this black couple – Yes. And they were very wealthy and they went to a big mega church north of town and they were big, huge George W. supporters. And we were all at Whole Foods meeting. I think it was called Wild Oats maybe back then still. Yeah, it was. I think it was and before so it got bought out. People from all over the place. And I told Emily, like, the far left and the far right, culturally speaking, have so much in common when yeah. it comes to the food they eat and basically this sort of fringy freedom way of doing things. It was really fascinating. It's like they have 
externally, they have a lot of the same positions and values. But then when you look at like underneath why the motivations as to why they do what they do is very different. Very different. Um, so what was the motivation with cloth diapers? Oh, explain this to people. So they're probably thinking like these little white diapers you see in cartoons. No, 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 no. Okay. So the I did not, I mean, like there were people that I were, I was friends with that used like pre-folds where it was like what you're talking about and you know, probably like your parents or grandparents probably used that leaked all the time and just were a mess. I I didn't use those. I used like the next kind of quality or level up, which were called pocket diapers. So there was like a waterproof cover and it had a fleece lining and there was a on at the back part of like towards their upper back, that part of the diaper had like a, a opening where you could slide a pre-fold or I had, they called them inserts that you would stuff the pocket diaper with the insert. And then when your kid would use the restroom, it would absorb into that insert. And then when you would go to wash it, you would pull the liner out and toss it in your washing machine with your detergent and wash dry it. Just like you would if anything else in your house got dirty with mud or pee, you know, if a kid peed in the bed or whatever. You just washed it and dried it and it was good as new and then you could use it again. So the the reason why I was motivated to to use cloth diapers was because of the the savings. I was it was very much monetarily driven for me. And I did care about like not creating lots of waste and also know. there was some talk of there being bad chemicals in these true the diapers and how how bad they are and how true that is that's another debate right that was definitely so a that component. was a part of health you know you you want your baby to be healthy and the things that are touching their skin which is their largest organ on their of their body you know all that so multiple factors but like i think what really really drove it for me was like oh man if i if i invest and buy these diapers one time then every time I use them, I'm going to be saving us tons of money. And I, I really did. I did save us tons of money. So anyway, so I went to this group that was with um, cloth diapering moms. And as I was there, I found out that there were other moms there that also did what was called infant potty training. So I started doing that with Hudson. I think he was, I think I started when he was around three months old. And within a couple of months, he was dry 100% of the time throughout the day. And I remember one time we were driving in the car and your mom was visiting us from out of town. And Hudson was in the back and he was just like wiggling around in his seat and kind of whimpering. And your mom was like, what's wrong with him? And I was like, oh, he has to pee. And she's like, well, he has a diaper on. Why doesn't he just go in his his diaper? And I was like, well, because he doesn't he doesn't like to do that. He doesn't like the way that that feels. So we ended up pulling over, and I think I actually pulled over on the side of the road and had him just, you know, fertilize the grass. Yep. So that was his preferred place was to go outside in our flower garden in the back of our house and uh, water the flowers. A lot of those early years, we were really crunchy, I think. Mm-hmm. We were... Um, we had watched like Food Inc. That's where we first learned about Joel Salatin, I think. Mm-hmm. At least for me, that's where I learned about him. I was doing Kamut juice. I was doing lots of fasts. I was doing the Master Cleanse. You were really getting bigger into what was a 
We did. I would. Sh- I tried to shop at Whole Foods, but it was expensive. So oftentimes, I would go to Trader Joe's. Acidophilus. What do you call that? Oh, probiotics. Yeah, probiotics. But we grew. There's ones oh, that the, you grew. Uh, yeah. What's I, it called? Kefir. Kefir. So we're doing all that stuff, and I think a lot of times in your early marriage, you, you kind of have bandwidth for that early marriage, early parenting. If you keep having kids, it certainly gets harder. I'm not saying you can't do it. In retrospect, I think that season of life when I had like two or three little kids at home, that would have been the ideal time for me to learn these sorts of things like what I wanted our diet to be like and, you know, what kind of ingredients that we wanted to keep in our house and what kind of medicine that we wanted to use and researching things like water bottles and do I want to use BPA-free plastics or using metal water bottles or, you know, what have you, just all those sorts of things that you need to research and think about and process and make decisions about that you have more of a capacity, a bandwidth to spend your time mulling over and thinking about. Now, nowadays, it's like, I just don't have that same time available because I have more responsibilities. I have more people that I'm having to parent, manage, instruct. So it it felt like I was just inundated with responsibilities when I had two or three little kids, but I had a lot more free time than I do now. We took a long break from that sort of crunchiness, but it seems like we're coming back around to it as a much older, more anchored couple. So we did this infant potty training. We did kefir and kamut juice and cloth diapers and all that stuff is neither here nor there. And, and I think generally good. But there were some things that we got into, and really when I say we, you got into, that was pretty negative. Yeah. I think um, there was a whole, in the same group, you know, these other moms that I was spending time with, they they had invited me, one of them had invited me to this other meeting, and it was all about attachment parenting and nonviolent communication. So, I go to this meeting, and a lot of it resonated with me, like they were talking about, you know, nursing on demand, and so that made sense to me, but then they were also talking about, like, you know, anticipating your kids' needs, and that made sense to me, but then they were, like, talking about, you know, not letting your children cry, like, always making sure you're meeting their needs, And then also, like, with the nonviolent communication, like, you wouldn't use any negative words. Like, you wouldn't say no to your child. You would say, you know, you would rephrase something instead of saying, like, no, don't touch that. You'd say, hands off, please. Or um, you would try to redirect them and, you know, always framing things in positive ways, in, like, positive words. Yeah, don't use no. Don't be negative. That's – if you say no. And, and the it's thing like is – the very basis of what they're saying. Yeah, and so, look – Use I, only positive words is what they would probably I'm say. I'm sure there's going to be some attachment parenting advocates out there that were greatly helped by it and going to tell us that we're misrepresenting it. But, you know, a lot of these things you don't learn in the vacuum of the internet. For, at least we didn't. These mm-hmm. were through relationships. Yes. And so this is how we saw it presented mm-hmm. in the, this group of people. And I would say the issue we ended up running into, there was two issues. Number one, that they don't see children as fallen. They right. don't They don't see them as sinners by nature. Mm-hmm. Um, almost everything 
is the issue of nurture. It seemed like that was the same group that thought you should have water birth because if you don't do a at-home water birth, it's a very violent experience for the yeah. kid and kind of scars the kid. Mm-hmm. So they're really anti-hospital. And so everything was about making sure the kid had all the right shape and influences so they would be kind of keep their goodness intact or mm-hmm. whatever. And when we're Christians, we think that in sin, my mother did conceive me, that we're sons of disobedience and children of wrath by nature, and we need to be born again. That doesn't mean that you treat kids like they're like the most hideous little pagans, but they do have a sin nature. And we ran into that. There was that issue, and, mm-hmm. and they would, wouldn't would say no, and they were very anti-spanking, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and why we didn't want to use spanking for everything, we, we thought the scripture clearly taught it, because it does. And the other issue is co-sleeping. Yes. Yes. Um, So, and as a nursing mom, early on, especially, it seemed like, okay, this, this is something that makes sense to me, because having my baby close by and being able to nurse and be able to not lose too much sleep myself um, in the middle of the night and um, meet my child's needs and still, still sleep, that made sense to me. But what was the real problem with it? Well, the real problem is it ruins your sex life. I mean, <laughs> yes. that's the main thing. So I'm all for – I don't mind having little children in our bed. And some people are really scared. It's going to roll over them. I'm a bigger guy. I've, I've never rolled any, over any of my kids. You, you know they're there. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it, you, you have a sort of sense of them there. So I'm fine with having a little kid there. And then we would do these little Moses baskets, these little mm-hmm. wicker baskets that we'd have by the side of the bed and lay the baby down there. Mm-hmm. And I think you can do that early on. But the, people would keep children in their beds until what, like four or five, six, some of these families. Yeah. There's a lot of families that are big proponents of a family bed. And yeah, that that it's just, it is like an extended time for the the kids sleeping in the same bed with the parents. And and if you're not a weirdo, that makes your sex life difficult. Yeah. Right. And so it's about having maintaining some boundaries and space. And there and they would say that if you let the baby cry itself to sleep, that that was abuse. And now there's this huge guilt trip. And then they would talk about things like SIDS. And mm-hmm. now you're scared if you don't have your baby Close by. by the baby's going to die of SIDS because the mom's heartbeat and warmth and all this uh, helps regulate the baby. Mm-hmm. And Her so, breathing stimulates the baby's breathing, and so it's funny attachment parenting and its desire to be gentle and calm and sweet can lead to a lot of fear-based parenting yeah. and just a really interrupt a marriage, uh, a necessary part of the marriage. We let a lot of our kids cried out, mm-hmm. and they all fell asleep, and they're okay. Why kids die of SIDS is a very difficult and complicated matter, which is outside the purview of this show. But I'll Mm -hmm. just tell you that we saw a lot of destructive things come out of that. I think one of the chief problems with it is it it orients everything around the child. And it's it's skewing the way that the order of your home should be. Everything should be centered around Christ. And then you have the marriage and then you have the family that is – off of that. So when you're shifting everything, it's like you're inverting it all. Instead of it being, you know, God and then the the married couple and then the family with the children, you're now making the children the the primary, the apex of everything. And when you start messing with the natural flow and the the priorities and the the order of things, then you're going to run into a a you're yeah, going to cause you're trouble. Gonna, you're going <laughs> to be it. riddled with problems. Yeah, and, and we, I push back hard 
Yeah. And I so look, here's who I am. I'm super traditional. And by traditional, I, I'm in a lot of ways, I just meant whatever was conventional at that time. Now I recognize being traditional means having a much broader like thinking, not in years historical. and decades, but thinking in, you know, decades, centuries, even thousands of yeah. years. And I, so I was really against anything like that. But that one I, I zeroed in on because I recognized that the way they're talking about children, their place in the home and their nature was this anti-scriptural. So we still keep – we've kept all our little ones close to the bed. Mm-hmm. And Moses basket and some, mm-hmm. some co-sleeping. But I think learning to sleep on your own as a baby, as a young child, it is such a hard but important skill. That with Hudson, he was over one when we really moved him out of our room full time and had him sleeping in his own space, especially at night. But, you know, sometimes during nap time, too. Sometimes it would, you know, in those early years, I miss it. In those early years with those little babies and those little toddlers, I would get to take naps with them. Now that I have older kids, when my little ones need naps, I don't get to take one because <laughs> I'm too busy managing the older kids. But I think it was really hard initially for Hudson to learn how to sleep on his own. I mean, he overcame it. And I don't want to say that it was like months and months and months. It was like, I don't know, like maybe two weeks before we really got into a really good pattern and established a new normal. But it was hard. It was it was learning a new skill. And that's what I would say is that like you are meeting your child's need when you're training them and teaching them how to soothe themselves, how to calm down, how to sleep by yourself. It's just, it's a hard thing. Like so many marriages, especially young marriages, finances was something we really struggled with. We didn't have the best education. Emily's dad did try to help us figure out a budget. But in terms of just the basic disciplines, we hadn't developed a good habit of that at all. (laughs) I remember like, one month I like paid all the bills and then suddenly it was a new month and like all the bills were due again. And I was just like, but I just paid those. And, and you were like, yeah, you have to pay them every month because <laughs> you had been living on your own for quite some time. Yeah, you didn't really live on your own. You lived at home. Mm-hmm. Then you lived on campus with Anne. For just a semester. And, and then, then I went back home and then then I we went, got married. Yeah. That first, my freshman year of college in the fall, I lived on campus for a semester, and then I switched to a smaller nursing college, so I moved back home and just lived at home until we got married in July. Even though Emily was naive when it came to paying monthly bills, I wasn't much better. I just had been out on my own long enough to know that you had to pay him month after month after month. And I had developed a really basic rudimentary system of writing what I have to pay on the back of an envelope and trying to pay whatever I could from my bank account. Back then, I can remember I I overdrew my bank account way more often than any grown man should. And that's because I never really learned to budget. I wasn't taught it. I went to a Crown Financial class at my Calvary Chapel Church I attended when I was uh, a new believer. They tried to teach me, but it didn't stick. Budgeting has never been my strong point. I've never been lazy. I've always been a hard worker. And I started working from a very early age. I worked as a busser and barback 
when I was 14 at a restaurant because that's something you could get away with in southern Indiana at the time. I worked pretty much from an early age, too. Like I worked a few times as a, a babysitter before I was 14. But as soon as I turned 14, I got a job working at Kroger as a bagger. Early in our dating relationship, I don't even know if we were officially dating yet. I would just go through your line where you're bagging, so you would bag my stuff for me. <laughs> I know. I remember my heart kind of fluttering when I would see you. These days were pretty good with money, but it certainly didn't start out that way. And I didn't really have a clear career path. I wasn't planning on going to college, but I ended up going to Northern Kentucky University. I always wanted to be in the ministry in some form, and I was really attracted to the idea of being some sort of history professor or whatever, but it wasn't something that was clear. But there were some pretty key moments that got me to where I am today, and I wish I'd gotten there sooner, but I didn't. One is I took a job uh, my freshman year in college working at Lazarus. Now that's Macy's today. They've combined and renamed. And when they hired me, they gave me two options. One, I could work in pots and pans, or I could work in uh, the cologne department, <laughs> selling men's cologne. And so I said pots and pans. And the manager said, you sure? I said, uh, I think so. She said, well, there's a 1% commission in perfume and cologne. And I said, sure, I'll do that. So I started working in selling cologne. So I know a whole lot about cologne. I can tell you all sorts of stuff about cologne. But I was really in it for that 1% commission. And back then... You know, I started at like $9.50. It's like crazy thinking about it. But I would get like this $500 bonus check or maybe even 1000 during Christmas, which was big money to me. So that was a big one. That's where I learned about commissions. And that's where I started selling and learning how to persuade people to buy this, this cologne or that cologne. And that was a good experience for me. I eventually left that job just because it was mostly weekends and evenings. It was really hard to be involved in church stuff. And I transitioned to landscaping for quite some time. You can still drive around Cincinnati and see some places that he I built. I built that wall. I planted that tree. Yeah. You know, a lot of the trees at the Cincinnati Art Museum, I, I planted with, uh, with a company I worked for. Whenever we would come in town, he would have us drive around and he would show the kids, see that? I, I planted that. <laughs> What's lovely about being a landscaper is you start a job and you finish a job. And when you finish a job, you can look at it and say, I did that. It's done. It's very clear. Sales is not like that. Sales starts over every sales cycle, every month or whatever you're judged on. Dr. Mayer, my father-in-law, started to put some pressure on me to get a job to take care of his daughter if we're going to get married. And so I quit college for a time and I joined the local electricians union and I worked for them for about nine months. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot. It was a good experience, but I was a mediocre electrician and I quit and I went back to college. Now I still needed a job to get married to Emily and Citibank was hiring customer service reps. Mm -hmm. So I went there and I took a test and I passed the test, but they had hired all their customer service reps and they said, would you like to do collections? And I was like, no, who wants to do collections? That's crazy. Those are vultures. Well, we don't have any customer service positions. So I said, <laughs> I'll, I'll take the job. So I got into collections at Citibank collecting past due credit card debt. And it was something I just took to naturally. Mm -hmm. I uh, have a legal mind. I'm fine with conflict. And immediately 
I was doing like 250% of goal. I was like blowing everybody away in my department. Emily actually got a job working there as well. I remember that being a really sweet season of our relationship, just driving back and forth to work, listening to the radio and singing together and picking you up from uh, NKU because you're living on campus and then driving up to Citibank's facility in Florence, Kentucky, and then waiting for you to get off your shift or you waiting for me to get off my shift and then us driving you back home to NKU. And then I was still living off campus or I was living off campus at that time and I would go home and we do it all over again. I was number one in my department at Citibank. But do you remember what happened to me? I remember you got fired. And I got fired because I was arrogant and we had a feminist. I mean, she's a feminist, right? Yeah, she very much was. Very much kind of stereotypical, brash, negative, terrible Karen sort of lady. And back then I was very confrontational. And since I was number one, she was giving me some sort of criticism. And I was like, you could fire literally everyone else in this department. And I, by myself, would still hit your goal for you. And she kept looking for some sort of technicality to get me fired on. And and that happened. It was very humbling. It was hard. Yeah, she found it. (laughs) Yes, she did. And it ended up being a blessing, though, uh, because... I now had this experience in collections. I had about a year and a half of experience from working at Citibank. Mm -hmm. And I got hired at a company that did student loan debt collection, and they paid much better. I think I made like 12 bucks an hour, but the bonuses were crazy. You bought me a car with one of your bonus checks right after we got married. So I had been there a couple months before we got married. And about four months in, I had really figured out their system. And my first bonus check was like 12 or 13 grand. It was a lot of money. And so remember, I grew up white trash. I grew up poor. I grew up above a bar. And I'm like, I'm 22 at the time, something Mm -hmm. like that. And I'm now making like 15 grand a month. And these early experiences really skewed me. I was never a kind of money-driven person. I'm just very competitive. I like to win. I like to be the number one guy. I enjoy that. And I had found uh, a a sort of industry where my gifts worked together really well and and made a whole lot of money for Emily and I. And I became used to taking risk and became used to being in jobs where if you just work really hard, you can give yourself a raise whenever you want it. If I wanted to get more money. I just had to be all the more focused. So it wasn't like a job where you had salary or you just got paid by the hour, Mm -hmm. but your actual extra effort would produce more. So I was number one there uh, for a long time in my department and I got promoted into management, one of the youngest managers ever at Sally Mae. And then I didn't really enjoy that because I didn't make as much money and I felt like I worked twice as much. It was like the opposite. Yeah. So then I went back to being a collector and now it's number one again. And I got bored with that and I really was interested in church planning. So I, I told him, look, I, I, I'm quitting. Here's my two weeks. And the VP of collections said, is there anything we can do to keep you? And I said, I suppose if you let me create my own position and set my own pay, I would stay. And he said, well, have, what do you, what do you want to say? Well, it was kind of like, 
the whole premise of office space where he he just doesn't care and he shows up in his flip-flops and they're like, we just want you to stay. How can we learn from you? <laughs> so he says, bring a proposal in on Monday and, and we'll consider it. So I go write a proposal to um, – I decided I wanted to be a trainer. I was more interested in teaching people the skills. And I said, if I can make them 1% better than the average collector, I want you to pay me $500 per head. And so I was like training 20 to 30 people a month. And uh, and then I had some other bonuses designed in it. And I also had it where I only had to work 20 hours a week. And I could set my own hours. And so I started making really big money uh, for a part-time employee and had all this freedom to start exploring church planning. And that's exactly what I started to do. Now, this would have been the perfect job for a church planner, but what ended up happening is my entire department got moved to New York State. And they offered me uh, my job and told me to keep it, and they were willing to pay to relocate me to New York. But I loved Cincinnati, and I wanted to stay here, and I really felt a strong call to plan a church. So I turned them down. And started working for Fifth Third Bank, and that gets us right back to Blackjack because Fifth Third did not pay well at all. In my experience of saying, I'm quitting unless you let me create my own job, emboldened me to quit Fifth Third and, and start playing Blackjack. And so that's how I got on the Blackjack team. And Blackjack was kind of similar to collections. If I wanted to make more money, all I had to do was work a little harder. Now, this kind of ties back into you and bills and paying bills. Do you remember one time that Blackjack came in really handy for us? Yes, because I wasn't very good about paying on a monthly basis. We fell behind on a number of bills. And I think I forget how much it was. It was thousands and thousands. Yeah. It was like five, six, seven. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. And here, to be fair to you, we didn't really have clearly defined roles at the time on who paid what and budget. It was kind of free-flowing. Like, I paid some, you paid some. That's yeah, and I think it wasn't just the household stuff either. There was also things that we were covering the expenses for. I was, for paying, for the, I was paying for the church building, and I was, like, giving a huge amount of money to our church plant. Church office and the utilities for the church office. and So I find out that Emily hasn't paid these bills, and I'm thinking, this is insane. This is a ton of money. So what I do is I get online, and literally the day I find this out, I get a ticket to fly to Vegas and uh, pack up my bags, and then I drive to C- – have her drop me off at CVG, and I fly out to McCarran Airport in Vegas, and then I go play blackjack for three or four days and come back home with ten grand and pay everything off, and it's all good. This ended up causing a lot of financial problems for us because I like to think of finances in terms of football. You have offense and defense. Offense is creating wealth, creating resources. Defense is protecting them. You know, some football teams have terrible defense, and they win just by scoring tons of touchdowns, right? They're winning with like 40 points, 50 points, 60 points. And that was the way I had figured out how to deal with things through collections and blackjack. If we were in a bad financial position, I wouldn't like restrict my expenses. I would just increase the amount of money I made. So I had a really, really strong offense, financially speaking, but terrible defense. And that's something you can get away with when you're in a high paying job where you have that sort of control. But if that should come to an end, 
then that'd be a real problem. And it did. In 2008, I started noticing that I had an eye twitch. And I started developing a lot of kind of nervous habits. Now, I was drinking tons of coffee, tons of Red Bull, and I was living in multiple time zones. I'd fly out to Vegas. I would work for a couple of days, fly back home. Then I would preach, and sometimes I'd fly back out that same day. I would fly back home on red eyes all the time, and I was just working crazy hours, and I never stopped working, and I was pouring a lot into the church. But uh, just the pressure of being a pastor, of living this crazy life, having kids and whatever was starting to wear, wear on me. And I remember once I felt like I was having a heart attack. And I went to see a doctor one of the few times I did. And he said there was nothing wrong with me physically. And that freaked me out because if there wasn't anything wrong physically, <laughs> there was something wrong with me mentally. And I called my friend David Fairchild and I said, this is what's happening to me. And he said, brother, Sounds like you're having an anxiety attack. And I started to realize that I was just pushing myself beyond any normal limits and living a life that was not sustainable. Also, at the same time, the church plant was full of mostly young 20-somethings, like mm -hmm. 21 through about 23, maybe 24. We had one older couple, and older back then was in their 40s, our yeah. age, my age now. What I was starting to realize is that, you know, I'm, I myself am just in probably about 28 at the time, not from a good family, not the most solid church background. I don't really have the wisdom and resources to help these people grow into the mature men and women that God would have them. And they were starting to have babies too. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't ready to, to lead them to that. And I thought, look, I have not stolen anyone's money. I've not cheated on my wife. I've been very faithful. And I think I need to have a change because I saw a storm on the horizon. I saw that if we didn't get out of this church plant, something bad might happen and something hadn't happened yet. So why don't we just say, praise God for the fruit that came from this church plant and get out. At the same time, my conscience was really being tortured by card counting. And I kept thinking back and forth whether or not this was morally right and if it was even just a good way to live. And I decided it was time to get out of Blackjack. And so we started to make some shifts. We moved out of our large house into a two-bedroom apartment. Yep. And a, kind of a rougher two-bedroom apartment. Yeah. It was a little rougher. <laughs> it was some mice. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, we made the switch there. And that's when the housing debacle happened with the mortgages and everything. And mm -hmm. suddenly Bla Blackjack, was it was a little hard to make money because – Vegas had changed and the blackjack team was going through a lot of stuff. So it was really good that I started to transition out. Yeah. But then when I announced that I was done with the church plant, we phased the church plant into another church that still exists to this day mm -hmm. in Cincinnati. That didn't go over well with the church plant. Not the greatest. They weren't, we didn't lose those relationships, but some people felt betrayed, but there just wasn't other elders to share the load with. Yeah. I, I thought that was really the main thing there was you were solo church planting. And as you were growing in your understanding of church ecclesiology, you realized that you really should have been sent out with a team with multiple elders and not be a solo church planter. It just was a lot for one person to bear on their own. 
And when you looked around at the the men that were involved, none of them were really ready. They were they good men. They're just kids. Yeah, They're like they, 21. And they were faithful. I mean, like everybody at the church were like lovely, godly people. But Tithing, just, very committed, all in. But it just wasn't – it would have been several years. Yeah, and I just did not have that in me. So within months of each other, Blackjack comes to an end. The church plant comes to an end. And now we're saying, what's next? What do we need to do? And my plan had to had been to go get more training somewhere. We were considering two options. One, San Diego, California, and the other one was Bloomington, Indiana. While we pondered which choice we would make, I was interviewing – for some jobs and I got offered a really high paying collection job, probably with the highest paying collection job I was ever offered. It was seriously the top reps are doing like a quarter million a year. And it was downtown in a skyscraper and there was pool tables in the office. It was, it was really cool and seemed like an exciting opportunity. Now the only way we could have made San Diego work was probably to stay on the blackjack team, but I didn't want to do that. In Bloomington, wasn't looking great. It was a college community. There wasn't a lot of job opportunities there that weren't related to the college or a military base that was close by, Crane Naval Base. But someone at the church in Bloomington said they would allow us to come live in their basement for a couple months while we got on our feet. So we had housing covered at least for a couple of months if we got out there. And a day came where I just had to make a decision. And I decided to pass on that job and move and be part of a what I had hoped would be a really healthy church and get friends for Emily and get mentorship for me and kind of reboot our life. So that's what we did. We actually moved to Bloomington without me having a job. And that was really the end of my ability to easily produce tons of income at the drop of a dime. It was a college town, so everybody was offering positions and paying peanuts, basically. There was no high-paying jobs, and it was a dark, difficult time for both of us, but especially for me, I think, mm -hmm. because here I had been a senior pastor. I had been a big deal. When I went to Vegas, everyone treated me like, you know, I was the big man in town, and that came to an end, and we were broke, and we had no money. And even finding a way to provide and put a roof over our heads was very difficult for me. It was very humbling. And that led to a season of, of poverty, a season of getting on food stamps, a season of WIC and needing government aid. and Searching couch cushions for money to buy diapers because I didn't have a washer and dryer and couldn't wash and dry the, the cloth diapers I had. Your marriage is a story, and there's twists and turns to every plot. I think about Laura Ingalls Wilder and her marriage to Almanzo. And if you've watched Little House on the Prairie, it covers some of those earliest years. But something they don't really dive into is just how dark their marriage got. So Almanzo ends up getting a sickness that makes him paralyzed for a long time. He's, he's not able to get out of bed. And though he eventually gets the use of his legs back, he has to walk with a cane the rest of his life. They have a newborn son that dies. Then their, their barn burns down. Then their, their daughter, Rose, burns down their entire house. On top of that, they had years of droughts that made their 300 acres of land not bear any good fruits. So they end up bankrupt. They have to move back in. 
with loved ones and then trying to find somewhere where Almanzo's health would improve. They moved down to Florida. That doesn't work out. And then they get this opportunity to move to the Ozarks. When they get there, slowly but surely, things start to turn around. And then they eventually have a very successful farm. And then Laura becomes a successful writer. And the latter years of their marriage was very happy. And I think about that. I think you don't know what chapter you're living in. Right? You don't know where you're at in the plot line of your marriage. And Emily and I were going into a very dark season full of a lot of struggle. We didn't have much. right? We didn't have any money. We didn't have any assets. But we had each other. We call these our Midian years because Midian was this desert that Moses fleed to. And God used it to humble him and prepare him to be the deliverer of Israel. It was a place of maturity through struggle and humility. And that's what God did in us. But it was a dark season. And dark seasons come and go. They'll either pull you apart or pull you closer. And by God's grace, we clung to each other. So if you and your spouse are under a dark cloud right now in your marriage or in your family life, cling to each other. Seasons, they come and go. I'm gonna stay out in the cold Look here, do that 